Mark 8, verse 14, says, Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. And then he charged them, that is Jesus, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It's because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, Seven. So he said to them, How is it you do not understand? Jesus has just uh, dealt with the Pharisees. They had asked him for a sign from heaven. And then they get into the boat and they're heading back to the other side. And Mark prefaces this event with the fact that the disciples had forgotten to take bread and that they had only one loaf at most in the boat. Now, these loaves were not like our loaves. You know, they're probably small, closer to one. might be a sandwich for an American, you know, a circular sandwich. Um, so one loaf is not enough to feed 12 hungry fishermen and one rabbi, right? But who is this rabbi? Jesus has fed 5,000 men plus women and children with meager supplies and later 4,000 with more left over than he started with. The disciples had seven large hamper-sized baskets full of leftovers from the 4,000, but they did not think to bring any of that bread with them. Oh, the misery and distress. Not a problem in itself, but Jesus, being the rabbi that he is, begins talking about leaven. He's on to us. Whatever shall we do? This is a real spiritual, mental density. It speaks to us of how dense we can be when it comes to spiritual things. We so need the Spirit of the Lord to keep us alert and aware of spiritual things so that our minds are set on the things above and not on things on the earth. As the Lord tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. The disciples are focused on the immediate, the earthly, the appetite perhaps. We have to live in this world, so we have to give some attention to these things below. But how often do those things take over? And dominate our thoughts. But we are to set our minds on things above as a default. How do the things above affect how I am to deal with things below? Mean, meanwhile, they're worried about bread. Jesus has bigger fish to fry. Or, or, bread, to, or bread to bake, maybe. And this is also this is interesting. This is their third crisis in a boat in, in the Gospel of Mark. You had the storm where Jesus was asleep in the bow. 
and have to wake him up. Don't you care we're perishing? And then you have the windstorm and Jesus comes to them walking on the water. And now, not as big a deal, but we're hungry and we forgot to bring bread. It would seem after a while they would begin to be a little wary when Jesus says, let's get into a boat and go to the other side. Uh-oh, what now? <laughs> so Jesus charges them, saying, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. He begins speaking to them, they think, about bread, leavened bread. So, what's he saying? We shouldn't get any bread from the Pharisees or the Herodians? Is their bread poisoned? Is it stale? Is it moldy? What in the world is Jesus talking about? He was often saying these confusing things to the disciples. And they said, it's because we have no bread. This is the level of their spiritual perception at this point. Then, really confusing to them, Jesus asked point blank, why are you concerned about not having bread? Catch up, guys. I'm not talking about bread. And so Jesus asked them, then, then don't you perceive or understand? This is a rhetorical question. Their answer is self-evident. It's obvious. And he asked them, then, is your heart still hardened? This harkens back to uh, after the feeding of the 5,000, back in Mark chapter 6, verses 51 and 52. It says, then he went up. Into the boat to them, this is after he came to them walking on the water, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and they marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. They didn't understand the meaning of that miracle, and they still don't understand. Jesus knew that they did not understand what the miracle of the loaves and the fishes really meant. They were amazed that he came to them walking on the water. People just don't do that. But it still did not penetrate their hearts and minds as to who this really was or is. That a hardness, this is a dullness of heart. There is a word for hardness that is obstinate and stubborn. That's not this word. This word is their heart is dull. They're not perceiving those spiritual things that they should be picking up on. So they have this hardness or dullness of heart that resulted in a blindness of the eyes. We're talking a spiritual blindness, not seeing with spiritual eyes, and a deafness of the ears, spiritual. And these are the twelve apostles. I mean, we may understand this with Judas, but this is all of them. They're all in the same boat, so to speak. They needed to have their eyes open and their ears unstopped. The Creator God in human flesh is in their midst. Now, this is a difficult concept for the human mind to grasp in all its fullness. They knew Him to be a real man, certainly a mighty prophet, but they did not perceive how much beyond a prophet He was or is. The truth of His person had not yet been revealed to Peter. He had not received the revelation from the Father. Now, looking back, they were saying, yeah, he's, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah. But what, what was their concept of who the Messiah is? They're even you know, after the resurrection, they're thinking, are you going to set up the kingdom now? You know, are you gonna, you're, the, you're the Messiah, you're going to establish the kingdom. 
It would have been difficult. This is a man they interacted with daily. He breathed, he ate, he drank, he slept, he used the bathroom. He got tired, dirty, sweaty. All the things that we experience. He didn't sort of glide across the ground wearing a halo and holding his hands out like he had just had his nails done. You see some depictions, you know, Jesus like that. It would have been difficult for these men, any men, to live in the fever pitch or emotional state that would have surrounded Jesus' words and actions. I mean, this is three and a half years of seeing miracles and, and things happening that, you know, are just difficult to see the reality of. Because we live in this everyday world where those things just, they just don't happen. You know. And these guys were around it all the time. So you can see how their senses might get a little bit dull. Like, I, I just can't attain this emotional or spiritual understanding at this point. It would have been difficult. Here's the king in their midst doing things that are kingdom related. Things that will be the norm when the kingdom comes. Setting all things right. The spiritual perception about Jesus was difficult for the apostles. It's difficult for us today. It's easy enough to understand what the Bible teaches about Him. He is God come in the flesh. God incarnate. God of very God. In Colossians 2.9, Paul writes and says, For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And Paul's writing this this is still, even after the resurrection, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus bodily. But how much does our understanding impact the conduct of our daily lives? How much does it impact our daily thought processes, our responses, our attitudes? For myself, I'd have to say not nearly enough. It's a lot easier to just ignore that reality and live as if the everyday routine is all that there is. Or to get caught up in the everyday and just not be open to something else that God may want to do. And if this is not the case for you, knowing that it is the case for many may help you to understand their actions and reactions. Why don't they seem to see the spiritual realities that you see or conduct themselves accordingly? This is why, at least in part, that Paul offered some of the prayers he offered in his letters. If we look over at Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 14, Paul is praying for the Ephesians here and he says in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is a church. These are believers. He's praying for them that they may be able to comprehend with all the saints. There's a comprehension that God desires for us to have that we may not have even as believers. Comprehend with all the saints this love of Christ, the width, the length, the depth, and height, which passes knowledge. How do you comprehend something that passes knowledge? 
That's what Paul's praying. It has to be a spiritual comprehension. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And he says, now to him who is able to do exceedingly above, abundantly above all that we ask or think. Maybe he's thinking in relation to this prayer he's just prayed. According to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You know, if we look back further in Ephesians chapter 1, he prays for them also in chapter 1 where he says in verse 15, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Again, he's praying this for Christians in the church. He may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, your eyes being opened, you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? Do we recognize that power? which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. The place, the power of Jesus and its power toward us. That same power. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When he writes to the Philippians, he prays for them. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. He says, This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So once again, uh, that you may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. This is for believers, that they would increase and increase in these things. And then in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9, Paul says, for this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power for all patience and longsuffering with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He wants them to be uh, filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. There is a spiritual discernment uh, that needs to be present. It's natural for people to have a somewhat dullness of heart. That's our natural man. We need to be awakened by the Lord and the Spirit. Why do you reason because you have no bread? He asked them. So much of our perception depends upon where we place our minds. And I've got a selection of scriptures here. There are 
more that I ran across. There's just you know, there's not enough room to talk about them. We've already read Colossians 3.1, set your mind, well, 3.2, set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. In Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, he says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, earthly things. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. In Mark chapter 12, Verse 30, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with some of your mind, and with all your strength. Now he says, with all your mind. Right? All of our mind is supposed to be set on loving the Lord. This is the first commandment, he says. We know that that's the greatest, and we know the second. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Similarly, Ephesians 4.23, he says, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We get renewed in the spirit of our mind by His Word, His commands. In 1 Peter 1.13, Peter says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Gird up the loins of your mind. Peter understood girding up his loins. They would wear these robes, and when you went out fishing, you know, you'd have to take that thing and tuck it in your belt. And that was getting you ready for action, ready to work. And so he's saying, gird up the loins of your mind. Get your mind ready. Be ready for action. And then in Romans 13, verses 11 and 12, Paul says, do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. This dullness of mind leads to a spiritual slumber. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Jesus then reminds these guys of recent events in the multiplying of the loaves and the fishes. He says, how is it that you do not understand? And what's really being said here is that you do not yet understand. Once again, Jesus does not replace them with more spiritually perceptive people, which I might have done. There weren't any more spiritually perceptive people. <laughs> he prayed all night before choosing these. And there was no mistake in his choices, even to the one who would betray him. And Jesus continues to work with them, bringing them to a place of full understanding. Isn't he long-suffering and patient with them exceedingly? And he's the same with us, how good God is to us. On the other hand, these men also do not leave him. They could get really frustrated. You know, well, I just can't understand. I guess I'll just have to give up. They continue in his discipleship program. And they, they may be thinking, as long as he'll have us, we ain't going nowhere. And that's the attitude for every person to have. As long as Jesus will have me, I'm not departing. We must do this. The devil will condemn you at times, with or without cause, and make you feel like you can't continue with him, that he does not want you. But don't listen to the father of lies. If you continue with him, he will take your burdens. 
He's taken your sins. He will also bless you in every way. In John 15, verses 4 and 5, Jesus tells them, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You're the branches. And he who abides or continues in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So these apostles should be commended for abiding, not giving up on this spiritual journey. There's a, a rebuke here for them. And so Jesus says, don't you remember? Think back to ancient history, guys. This is like, you know, maybe one was a month ago or something. Uh, David Guzik says their understanding should have been based on seeing what Jesus already did. We can always take the past faithfulness of God as a promise for his continued love and care. And he says, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up with 5,000? Twelve. How many did you take up with the 4,000? Seven. They do the math well. These guys get an A-plus on the math quiz. And so they're congratulating one another, high fives all around the boat. Yeah, we got it. Twelve, seven. And so he says to them, how is it that you do not yet understand? Well, the issue that Jesus wants to speak to them about is leaven, specifically the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians. And we might look at them as the religious and political classes. The leaven is untruths or twistings of the truth. These people may be sincere or not, but they are sincerely wrong. We must listen to only one voice, and that voice is true. These two groups were not friends and would not normally have had anything to do with one another. But now they have a common enemy who threatens the power of them both. Leaven is always spoken of as evil, sin, iniquity in the Bible. Some think there are some exceptions. I don't see any exceptions myself. William Barclay says, Sometimes the Jew used the word leaven much as we would use the term original sin or the natural evil of human nature. We first encounter speaking about leaven in the book of Exodus at the Passover. They were to eat unleavened bread for the seven days of the feast that began at Passover. And the reason was that they were to be ready to depart quickly. They didn't have time for the bread to rise. The leaven, um, many of you ladies may do this, you, you can take a little piece of a leavened lump of dough and then the next time you make dough you can put that little piece of leaven in there and pretty soon the whole loaf will rise. The whole lump of dough will rise and you'll have a leavened loaf. It's, it spreads through everything. And so as they're getting ready to depart Egypt after the killing of the firstborn they have to eat unleavened bread. There's an urgency about their departure. They were to be ready, staff in hand, feet shod, etc. And we're told in Exodus 12 and verse 11, he's, the Lord tells him, Thus shall you eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. This was the hurry up time. Right? Sounds remarkably similar to being ready for the departure of the rapture. 
Get ready. Watch. Well, today the Jewish people go through elaborate rituals to get all the leaven out of the house for Passover. And they'll go through and they'll sweep it up. And, you know, and uh, there's always a situation where the youngest child, once they're old enough, they'll be tasked with finding the last bit of leaven in the house. And so it'll be somewhere fairly obvious, you know, like Easter egg hunts for toddlers. You don't hide them really good, you know, you just, they're kind of just there. And so uh, the youngest child will go around and they'll find the last living and they'll get rid of it because this is getting rid of sin. None of the offerings to the Lord were to contain leaven with only one exception. And that was the Feast of Passover. I mean, the Pentecost. Feast of Pentecost. And we read in Leviticus 23, verses 16 and 17, he says, Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. And this would be the day of Pentecost, which was, we know it as the day the church was born. He says, you shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. So here all of a sudden we have this offering to the Lord of leavened loaves. And leaven is, you know, well, it doesn't change the meaning of leaven. As we think about this, um, these loaves, uh, Jesus said in John twelve twenty four, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And so we have these two loaves that are waved before the Lord on the day of Pentecost. The two loaves, um, I believe, most believe, represent the Jew and the Gentile. And the Lord receives them leavened. He receives sinners. The sacrifice of Jesus has been completed and God can receive sinners because of this removal of sin. The church is born and it consists of these two peoples, these two loaves. Jew and Gentile. But the leaven still represents that which is bad. It doesn't change the leaven to something that is good. The difference is that God can truly receive sinners into His presence since the blood of Jesus has been shed for them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6-8, through Paul speaks to the Corinthians about well, there was sexual immorality in their midst. And he says, it's worse than even the Gentiles practice outside the church church walls. And he says, and you guys are, are proud about it. They were proud of their tolerance probably. Oh, we're so loving. We're so nice. We're so tolerant. In verse 6, Paul says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So he's talking about this. Uh, just the littlest bit of sin that's allowed to per, uh, come in will permeate the entire lump of dough. Therefore, he says, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. Christ has taken our sins away. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So leaven remains a problem, and we are not to allow leaven to continue in our lives. We are to confess and repent. We are not to allow the leaven to permeate the lump of dough, the fellowship of the believers. Some believe 
that there is an exception to that rule that leaven is evil, and this is in the parable of the leaven in the loaf. It's in Matthew 13.33. I think it's also found in Luke. It's just a one, one verser. In Matthew 13.33, he says, Another parable he spoke to them, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Some people think this is a parable about the goodness of the leaven and that the leaven represents the gospel. It's kind of spread throughout the world until the kingdom conquers. It will increase more and more in the world until it permeates the world and the kingdom is established. This would be little by little just as leaven works in dough. And there are a lot of people who believe some version of this. There are a few problems with this interpretation. First, leaven is universally spoken of as evil. This would be the lone exception, if it were an exception. And secondly, the kingdom comes suddenly, not gradually. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about the statue and the head of gold, head and shoulders of gold and silver, you know, and then uh, brass and then down uh, the legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. And so he sees this image and Daniel's interpreting the dream. Well, he's telling him what the dream is. First he had to tell him what the dream was and then interpret it. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2.34, You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. So this is in times. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So that this image of the coming of the kingdom, it happens suddenly. Uh, Daniel interprets it in chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, this particular part of where he says, uh, In the days of these kings, those ten toes in the image, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So, uh, what happens is Jesus comes back in chapter 19 of Revelation, and he sets up the kingdom. This happens at that point. It doesn't uh, go on and on as the gospel spreads and, and uh, you know, the world becomes more and more Christian and then Jesus comes back after we've established the kingdom for Him. No, he, He's coming back at the very end and if He didn't come back, He says all flesh would be destroyed. He comes back as a rescue mission. For Israel, but also for others. Uh, Revelation 22, 12, and 13, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. And that can be translated suddenly. Once He comes, it's going to be pow. You know, there's not going to be any time for anybody to change their mind at that point. You change your mind now or, you know, into the tribulation from the rapture. 
Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work, lest we doubt who's speaking. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Is the way Jesus identifies himself uh, in the book of Revelation. And so this uh, coming quickly or suddenly, is he, Jesus says this six times in the book of Revelation. Another problem with this is that a leavening of the kingdom of heaven is what is indicated in last day's prophecy. It's not a good thing. In Luke 18.18, Jesus talking about... That's that's the wrong reference. Okay, so somebody made a boo-boo. Might have been me. Now, Jesus, in the passage that I'll find later, um, when Jesus is talking about his return, he asks the question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And the indication is, not so much. He's not going to find much faith on the earth when he comes. And this may be in the context of the tribulation period. Sorry about that. Wrong reference. Uh, Matthew twenty four twelve. That's the right one. Is that a no, no, it's not. But in Matthew 24, of course, he's talking about these last day scenarios again, as, as you mentioned last week. Take care of the no man. Take heed that no man deceive you. Uh, he says in verse 12 of Matthew 24, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. So in those end times, it's not going to be things are getting better and better. Things are going to be getting worse. 2 Timothy 3.13 tells us that evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse deceiving and being deceived. This is looking again toward the end times. 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit expressly says, in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So many are going to depart and this is one of the reasons Jesus returns to judge the world. He will not allow the evil to continue. As we said, all flesh would be destroyed if he didn't come back when he does. This state of the world is not consistent with the kingdom. And so this this parable of the leaven in the loaf is not representative of how the church is going to grow and what's going to occur. Matthew 24 warns about deception. Three times Jesus says, uh, take heed that you not be deceived. And then Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, he says, Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Not, not great times, not better times. Perilous times. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good. Traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Sounds a lot like the description of our world. Only it's going to get worse. It's not going to improve. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. 
not be a time when things are getting better and better, but the opposite and God's judgment will fall. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10, uh, Jesus speaking to the church in Philadelphia, He says, Because you have kept My command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So again, an end times scenario. Uh, very negative. So it's, it's ever more important that we are busy about the Lord's business, continuing in it faithfully and consistently. The leaven of the Pharisees, we are told in Matthew, is the doctrine or teaching of the Pharisees. It's Matthew 16, 11 and 12, he says, how is it you do not understand? And this is in the same, is in Matthew's context of, of Mark 8 here. How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread. So they, they get this message, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In Luke, we're told that the leaven is their hypocrisy. As Luke 12.1, 12, 12, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So we are to take heed and beware of the leaven. Leaven spreads through the whole lump of dough. Christendom today is well leavened. The Word of God is ignored, compromised, or even denied. And that is leaven that corrupts. The Pharisees' interpretation of the Scriptures indicated that they were righteous and everyone else was condemned. Anytime someone teaches that they are righteous, apart from the imputed righteousness of Christ through faith, uh, this is hypocritical. For no one is righteous apart from Him. And we continue to fall short in this life as the Lord continues to refine us. Well, the Herodians are referred to as Sadducees in parallel passages, as we saw. Uh, they were the materialists and the politicians of the day, and they were allies. Their focus was on the here and now. They concentrated on gaining wealth and power. William MacDonald says, The leaven of the Pharisees includes hypocrisy, ritualism, self-righteousness, and bigotry. The Pharisees made a great outward made great outward pretensions of sanctity, but were inwardly corrupt and unholy. The leaven of Herod may include skepticism, immorality, and worldliness. The Herodians were conspicuous for these sins. So Jesus says to beware these things, beware the leaven. Keep your eyes on the prize to be revealed at the coming of the Lord Jesus.